you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Bark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, Tubi, all the things. And Amazon Prime. And Amazon Prime. True. <laughs> I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has directed two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently working on a horror comedy called Best Friends Forever. I'm a producer's rep who used to work at Sundance. This week, we welcome writer-director Brian Helgeland on the show to talk about his latest feature, Finest Kind, starring Ben Foster and Tommy Lee Jones. And this is all thanks to Eric Toms, our producer, for going to Austin and getting this interview. After that, we'll play another round of Ask the Expert. But first, Ulrich, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, still on furlough, which is... what it is but I'm really trying to just enjoy it you know it's like the holidays right so like you know I kind of wish I didn't work during the holidays and so I'm basically just like embracing that and making lots of fun things I made meringue cookies yesterday for the first time ever which was really fun and they're really good (laughs) yeah I have have my start date back to work so I'm like kind of feeling a little bit more new year yeah like whatever like it's you know this is gonna come to an end soon and I'll be back to work hopefully this will never happen again (laughs) but uh, we'll see you know and I really like my job and I really want to stay there so you know I've, I've been like you know exploring other options but I really feel like as long as this works I just want to stick with it yeah it's just very comfortable but we'll see. We'll see what happens. And then writing. I did write last night. Really a little bit. Congrats. Maybe a half a page, maybe. You know, a couple lines. I'll take it. Just keeping the, the project alive and the script going. So that was cool. And yeah, watching holiday movies and watching ones I've never seen before. And like being like, oh, so this is why I never watched this one. Which one? <laughs> is it Family Stone? Tell me which one. Christmas with the Cranks is the one I watched. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I got, I got like three quarters through and then like yeah. the end is happening and I'm like, oh, this, I just don't buy this. Like I don't, I bought everything until this moment and like there was a couple laughs and a couple, but just like, you know, and I tried Candy Cane Lane. Oh, how was that? Yeah, I don't hate it. I think I'll probably finish it. It's just like, there are some bad effects in it, which I'm like, when you come to an Eddie Murphy movie, it's like, really, guys, like you're going to yeah. you're going to do this to us. Amazon, like you have money. Clearly, just pay people more money to make it look better. <laughs> you know? But yeah, I haven't really gotten to like the meat of that yet. Like that one's just sort of like, you know, like some magical stuff has happened, but like it's not quite at the super magic yet. But I got to I'm I'm going to I'm going to see it through. I'm going to see because I want to yeah. get to like the, the 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 good part, I guess. Commit to it. Uh, see what happens. But I watched Elf again. I like <gasps> Elf. Elf's the best. I've seen it innumerable times. Innumerable. I'd only only seen it twice. I saw it in the theater and then I saw it now yesterday. <laughs> I have seen it. It's probably the movie that I've seen most. Like really? I adore that movie. I can watch it anytime. It's like Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest oh, and Elf. That's good, you know? too. Yeah. yeah. A, a Christmas Story is probably the one I've seen almost the most, but it's almost to the point where I can't watch it anymore. I've seen it so many times. Like I tried watching it, and I was just like, uh, you know, this is I will finish it this, this holiday season, but I, I kind of wanted to break into new things. So I watched Surviving Christmas. Have you seen that one with no. Ben Affleck and J- James Gandolfini? No. It's crazy, dude. This movie is insane. It's like an indie movie. But like with big time actors and it's so strange and it's almost like Ben Affleck should have been cast, at, you know, they should have cast Jim Carrey or even like Will Ferrell to play the Ben Affleck character. And it would have worked so much better because like he's just not, not goofy it's not like enough. he's not he's not. Yeah, he's not goofy enough. Yeah. And he's a little too edgy where like the character seems too scary. Like he oh. should be like he needs to be more goofy and silly so like you don't feel like he's scary and i feel like it's almost like this billionaire character he's playing is almost like you're like oh he might murder the whole family i don't know <laughs> like what's gonna happen that's clearly not what's gonna happen but it's like it's just a he's a little too it's like they, they should have gotten somebody who was more zany yeah. you know to to pull it to make it work anyways that's what my life is like watching christmas movies trying to write Enjoying life. What, what, what are you up to? 
Well, I I have two things to mention, but I, if we're on the topic of Christmas movies, I just finished Christmas Sale, which mm. has the most unlikely Hallmark Christmas movie cast than you could wow. think of. Cool. Katie Sackoff mm. and Terry nice. O'Quinn. Oh, very cool. Like, just think about wow. how bizarre. And Terry O'Quinn plays like the most lovable character. It's very interesting. Wow. No, I wanted to tell you, because you already know, but I guess I wanted to say on the show that last week on the show, I was like, what am I going to do? I can't open my script. I can't write. I'm so blocked. And then you were like, just put some time in your calendar, Liz. And I did. <laughs> and I got my writing done last week. Wow, and now I'm amazing. ahead of the game. So thank you, podcast. Thank you, Auric. And then the other, yay. yay. The other thing that happened is, it was one of my errands today is that I inherited a camera from the 60s and I went to a camera shop today and wow. it's a working camera. And so I'm going to, I bought some film and I'm going to start taking photos in my wow. with my dad's old camera. That's fun. Yeah. So those are the things. I mean, I don't think I'll bring it on to Alabama for Christmas, but I'm going to try to take 36 photos and see what they look like and see if I want to keep on taking film photos. It's amazing. Like super exciting to me. Wow. Fun. Yeah. What was the other thing I was going to say? I can't remember. Oh, yeah. So also my movie... Parka is having a screening on Wednesday, so I'm actually going to go with my mom. So that's going to be fun Aww. to like see it on the big screen for the first time. I've never seen it on the big screen before. And I'm like so bad at social media. I've like promoted it once and I haven't even said I was going to be there yet. So I got to like get off this Zoom and immediately like say, I'm going to be at the screening. Come on Wednesday to see this is movie. Is that tomorrow or like Nick or? No, tomorrow. <laughs> Oh, so this podcast recording will do nothing for you. Do nothing. I know. I didn't even mention, like, that's the thing. I always forget about these things. Like, I should have mentioned it two weeks ago and last week, but I just, like, it just slips my mind, you know, that these things are happening. But yeah, but that's exciting. It's fun. Do you know what shouldn't slip someone's mind? Ooh. Donating to us on Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Any amount is meaningful, but if you give $1.99 a month, you get access to like hundreds of recordings that aren't available on iTunes or Spotify. They're called the Back Catalog, and there are some very, very good episodes back there. Please check out Patreon. It is the way the show keeps going. It is like the entire funding for the show at this moment. And thank you so much in advance for your holiday kindness. And without any more delay, here's Eric's chat with Brian Helgeland. Brian Helgeland, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. All right. Thank you for having me. So please give me the elevator pitch for Finest Kind. A group of commercial fishermen, two of whom are half brothers, get in way over their head and have to figure a, a way to get back under their head. I don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm sold. All right. I do have to say. I'm it's a, not a pitch friendly, sales friendly idea. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got a chance to to watch it. I was given a screener and I do have to say, I'm going to get to the structure and everything later, but I do have to say on my uh, uh, on my ride over here, I was talking with my Uber driver and he said, oh, you're interviewing some people who, who are you interviewing? And I was like, oh, you know, Alina Heady and like uh, Brian Heckland. He was like, man on fire? Huh? That's my favorite. And I was like, wow, all right. He knows right. his stuff. So you've got some big fans out there. <laughs> no, cool. How many days did you shoot roughly? 35. Okay. And what was, I know there's all sorts of... Uh, well, I, should, I should say it's the short, for me as a director, it's the shortest amount of time I ever had to make a movie. No kidding, really? Yeah. And this seems like this was not an easy film to make. No, no. I want to get into all of that stuff too, but, and I know you got to be a little tight-lipped about this stuff, but roughly what was your budget? About, with, after rebates and all that stuff, like 23, 24 or so. Yeah. Now, you are from New Bedford, yeah. Massachusetts, and of course, this story takes place in Massachusetts. You spent formative years on a fishing boat. How much of this were you drawing from your real-life experiences? How many of these were actual characters that you knew? Yeah, so I had fished. I fished for a year and a half. I'm from a fishing family. My dad was a fisherman, my grandfather. But I, every character in the film that is on a boat is it's not even an, an amalgamation. They are based on a specific person that I knew. Mm-hmm. Some of them I still know. Were you giving shucking lessons to uh, to some of the crew? I, to- Toby and Ben and all those guys, we sent them all out fishing. Oh, really? So I found 
a kid I fished with when I was a kid, I was 23 and he was 19, and Ivan Mulhus, he was now a fishing boat captain. Mm. He took all the actors out fishing. No kidding. And he said, how should I treat them? And I said, treat them mercilessly. And yeah. He, and he said, I will do. You got a bunch of soft hand <laughs> actors. Yeah, yeah. And he's a very funny guy. So he, he kind of did it with relish and they took it really well. And he, he wasn't cruel or anything, but they all went fishing, deep sea fishing. They were all out to sea for a week. Wow. Aaron Stanford got brutally seasick. My friend said he'd never seen a guy that seasick before. <laughs> wow, really? But was a trooper about it, kept working and would throw up and work. And, <laughs> but they all bonded. You know, it's, it's the bond you feel between them is like a real, it's not acting. It's a real bond that developed from that. We had that on Knight's Tale, too. We were so long in prep and everyone learning how to sword fight and ride horses and all that. Yeah. That they all, what you, the friendship you feel is real. That's why you feel it. Now, the structure of the story is very interesting yeah. because it's a slow burn. Yeah. It took quite a while. I remember I was at about like the 15 minute mark and was like, okay, wh- what's this movie about? Yeah. Because it's a lot of things because yeah. it is a family story. It is a coming of age story. It is, there's romance in yeah. it as well. There's, you know, the thriller aspect to it. So how did you approach it? This is not the typical, you know, like you came from like a Tony Scott background where it's just like, look, first five minutes, we're going to have three explosions. Yeah. We're going to have a helicopter. We're... Yeah. So yeah, what was the approach when you were And not, not necessarily with Tony. We did Man on Fire together. And our big note always from Fox was nothing happens in the first hour of this damn movie. <laughs> and we would say, yeah, except Denzel and, and Dakota fall in love. And, and she changes, she, op- she opens his life back up. So when she does get kidnapped, it has a certain response that yeah. it wouldn't have if she got kidnapped in the first 10 minutes. So that was the idea is to take as long as we could to get to know everyone and get to like everybody and get into that world and feel the whole thing. Multiple characters, two father and son relationships, mm-hmm. the brother's relationship. And the faster that it becomes a crime thriller, the quicker all that stuff has to kind of screech to a halt because you got to deal with the crime. So the longer we could keep our powder dry, so to speak, and not have that as an element, the better for when it showed up that you really care about these guys and you're worried about them. And, and then you can use all that to drive put everyone in a crucible dramatically and drive all the drama to its conclusion in a way that you couldn't if it was a straight drama. Mm-hmm. I always loved Something Wild for that reason, mm-hmm. because it's this goofy Melanie Griffith and it's a kind of what it, it's an oddball comedy. Yeah. But it's a little bit sad and you're just you're happy to watch it because it's engaging. And then they go to a high school reunion an hour into the movie yeah. and Ray Liotta is at the reunion and that movie does as hard a U-turn as a movie can do, and it's great. And so you don't have to, you could be watching one thing, and it can, as long as it genuinely turns into something else, it can, it can do so. Yeah. Was there ever any, because I mean, there is some excitement in the, very early on. Yeah. I don't want to give anything away, yeah. but, but you do have, some, was there ever any push by any financiers or studios just like, hey, listen, let's have somebody pull out a gun within the first five minutes? Yeah, like I think so. Different versions of it that never happened, you know, because I wrote it 25 years ago. And have tried to sell it at different times. So yeah, at first, hey, could could we get this going quicker, or could we get, like you say, get some some guns pointed? Yeah. But it was like that's not the movie it was supposed to be. And if we did that, it would have just been okay. Guys sold some drugs, and okay, now everyone's after each other. Yeah. And, take, and I have to spend a bunch of time doing tough guy guns pointed in the face scenes that I'm not interested in until I'm interested in them. Yeah. You know. And so take me a little bit, what was the path to getting here? So you said you wrote it 25 years ago, and then it sounds like there was just a lot of starts and stops, which is yeah. very common in, in, in films. I'll, yeah, I'll, I gave it to Heath Ledger to play Toby Wallace's part mm-hmm. right after Knight's Tale. Is around the time I wrote it. And Heath read it, he called me up, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I want to do it. And it is a fairly fresh new script, and I thought, this is great. And he started talking about Ben Foster's part. And I'm like, Heath, no, it's the, it's the Charlie part. It's the young guy part. Yeah. He goes, I don't want to be the young guy. I played the young guy. I want to be this the older brother. And I said, you're just not old enough. And Heath said, wait for me then. Really? And I was, you know, I wasn't on fire to do it right then. And I loved Heath. And I'm like, okay. And the joke being is I'm still waiting for Heath. Yeah. And that put me off of it. When Heath died, it really put me off of it. And I don't think I tried to do a single thing with it for 10 years after that. Yeah. Then I, you know, I thought it's still my movie. I still got to, I love it. And I tried again and different versions of it and nothing ever stuck. 
And finally, I, there was sort of no one involved, and Gary Foster, the producer, was like, let's try to get this going one more time. Yeah. And we, I sent it to Ben Foster, and Ben wanted to do it. And he's like, I'm in. He didn't know him. He called me up, and I said, I, it's great you're in, but you might be in for nothing. Because <laughs> not, there's no, this isn't not set up, and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, it doesn't matter. He goes, if you can raise any money using my name, go ahead and do it. I want to do this. And then I had seen this movie, Baby Teeth, the Australian movie that Toby's in. And I thought he was phenomenal. And I sent it to Toby. We had the same agency. And he was in. And he said, I'd love to come in and read for it. And I said, yeah, you don't have to read for it. If I make it, you're doing it. <laughs> and he's like, all right, when are we making it? And I said, I don't know. So that was it. I had Ben, you know, who's attractive to people, and Toby, who's an unknown, and everyone's like, well, who, who else can we get? And I said, I already told Toby he's doing it. So it was kind of my way of like just sort of being prepared for knowing wanting to do it anyway. So I might as well do it with the people. I might as well not do it with the people that I want to do it with. <laughs> and that's how it started. And th but then they said, can you please help us out here with the dad? And I said, okay, we'll try to get someone. And we got Tommy Lee for the dad. And that seemed to make everyone happy. It's a pretty good get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. We screened it. I think it was in Woodstock Film Festival. And when Tommy Lee just appears on screen, people started clapping. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, that, that's a movie star. And then we got Jenna Ortega, like really lucky because she yeah. had only done, not only, but she had done Scream. Mm -hmm. And Wednesday she was shooting. So no one had any concept of what that was going to turn into. Yeah. In fact, when they said, I said, what's this actress doing? And they said, because it was hard to get a hold of her because she was in Romania. Mm -hmm. So even for a Zoom with the time difference. And they said, she's doing a TV series called Wednesday. And I said, that, is that the sequel to Tuesday? I don't know what is that, <laughs> you know? And uh, then I found out what it was, right? So she's the only member of the cast. When she came out of her trailer, people across the street were like, Jenna, Jenna. Really? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And now, we were like, we're, 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 what's going on with this? Now, I've... I've I'm a big fan of both Ben Foster and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. And from what I've gathered with interviews with William Friedkin when he worked with Tommy Lee Jones, like Tommy Lee Jones, you just kind of have to point him and just say, go do that. And he's like, great, done. Yeah. Whereas Ben Foster, very much, you know, a famous method actor. Yeah, yeah. So how, as a director, are you taking these different acting techniques and making sure that everyone gets what they need and kind of like cater to them, yeah. even if it happens to be, you know, maybe sometimes antithetical? Yeah, well... I don't rehearse, so I only rehearse the day of the, the sh whatever we're shooting. Yeah. I mean, I'll do a, maybe a read-through if, 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 if it's demanded. I mean, usually the studio demands that kind of thing. In this case, they didn't, so we didn't do a read-through. But I'll talk to all the cast about their characters, but I don't rehearse until the morning that we shoot. And so however you get there, unless you're coming up with it the morning we shoot, which n no respectable actor that I've worked with does that. Mm hmm that's a recipe for disaster. But uh, however you get there, it doesn't, uh, it's not annoying to another actor because it's just like, okay, we're rehearsing this scene. So however they do it, 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 I find that it doesn't matter. It doesn't clash really. Sometimes some actors don't like to ad lib and they don't like to fool around. Tommy Lee's like that. Mm -hmm. But the cast were very committed to the dialogue in the film because they knew that I knew that world. Yeah. And I usually, when that becomes a free-for-all, it's because it's a badly written script and mm -hmm. they're trying to bring something to it that it doesn't have itself. And they felt like this had it. But they, we still ad-libbed a lot and had a lot of fun. The opening scene where they're talking about Charlie looking like Justin Bieber, those guys yeah. came up with that. And they oh, said, no hey. kidding. Yeah, they said, hey, can we show you something? <clears throat> we were about to shoot, and they showed me. And I was like, that, let's do that instead. Such a great line. You guys are missing out. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I had the same scene of sort of the hazing of the, of the new guy on the boat, and it was funny, but that was just the same thing, and it was funnier, so we did that. Yeah. But, yeah, Tommy Lee was like, you know, it's like having, like, it's like working with your grand, you know, like your 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 grumpy grandfather, yeah, right? Yeah. You love him, and you got to deal with the grumpiness. Yeah. And I don't mean to boil it down to that because he's a super talented actor. Oh, yeah. And he, he brought that guy alive. But, you, you know, you hear stories like he's difficult and those things. But it, 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 it's more like he, there's a guy who's set in his ways and mm -hmm. we, got it, we got him. But everyone's so excited that it's Tommy Lee Jones. Everybody, like the, the assistant directors, the art department, I'm like, Tommy Lee Jones is here. <laughs> so we're all dying for him to like us. Of course. And, but more importantly, we're dying for him to think we're, we're pros. And, yeah. And we know what we're doing because all he's looking for is a person that doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. Or, or is at that moment, perhaps not knowing what they're yeah. doing. So we were all... 
he came to set the first time. We had been shooting for three weeks, so we were already a kind of tight group. And the second assistant director, he was about to go in for his makeup tests, and she said, can I get you anything to drink? And he said, I'll have a tea. And she said, what kind of tea? And he said, I like the tea that comes with no questions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair but, enough. But no, no one was like, oh, he was mean to me or, or gruff with me. Everyone was like, I, I got a Tommy Lee Jones story. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I feel like so many actors, too, are... They want to be people pleasers, you know, of course, it's like, yeah. you know, they're, you know, they're, they're show, show and dance people, you know, whereas I feel yeah. like he's just like, look, I'm going to show up, I'm going to do my job, and then we're all going to go. Yeah, he, yeah he's like, I'm going to show, I'm going to do my job, which I can do better than all of you. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. And you show me that you can do, do it as good as I can, which we all are game to do. I got to ask now, one of the things going all the way back to Spielberg and Jaws is Spielberg had always said like never ever shoot on the open water like you right. gotta have your head examined if you're like don't right. do it don't do it don't right. do it and then what did you guys do we shot on the open water <laughs> but I would say but we didn't bring a mechanical shark with us <laughs> the smart yeah <laughs> you did learn okay yeah. <laughs> so and w- water you plan a million times for all, every eventuality and all that stuff and we didn't have a lot of time on the water but you got to get lucky mm-hmm. if you have a limited budget and you don't have someone saying, oh, yeah, we're sorry. It was no good that day. We'll give you another day, which we didn't have. And you, so you got to get lucky, first of all. And it helped that all the guys had been fishing. So I didn't we have a scene with the fishing gear and we're not teaching them how to handle it the same morning we're trying to shoot it. So they'd learned all that stuff. I got my buddy up in the wheelhouse instead of some cranky captain we hired who thinks we're all a bunch of jerks. Yeah, yeah. So when the sun needs to get from here, from a little to my shoulder to a little to my face, I can look at him and go, Yvonne, get it over that way. <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right. He's happy to do it. So we, we had all those things going for us. You know, all kinds of weird stuff happen. Like we have all this Coast Guard stuff. And mm-hmm. we're like, we don't have any money to do this. And we need the Coast Guard. And we go to the Coast Guard and we show them everything we're doing. And they're happy they're they're being portrayed in a positive, life-saving way. Yeah. But they have all these, you got to haul this guy up out of the water. He's got to go to your Coast Guard training. Toby had to go to learn to get certified so he could be in that basket. Oh, really? All kinds of stuff. And we had our list of things. And they were like, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Oh, terrific. And finally, Gary, the producer, said, well, how much is this all going to cost? And we're all like, oh, because we're now going to have to boil it down to we're going to only get a third of those things or whatever. And the Coast Guard guy said, well, we'll Coast Guard will pay for the first tank of gas on the helicopter. But if we use a second tank of gas, you guys got to pay for it. Done. And we're like, that's it? And he goes, "Uh, well, he goes, the U.S. Coast Guard's not interested in making money off your movie. That's terrific. And I was like, okay, so it's this weird like stuff like that happens that you think the movie gods are, are looking out for you. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Now, I, I, it's always said that that you make three different films. It's the film that you plan on making, the film you have in production, and then the film you finally end up with. I feel like there's a fourth one with you because you wrote the film as well. Yeah. So how Ooh. much of it actually stuck around from what you when you first came up with the idea, and how many how much of it actually got onto screen? Yeah, I. Th- the very first draft, twenty when I was just out of film school, even I think I it was just Charlie, the guy, the captain of the boat, wasn't his brother. Yeah, and very a couple of years in before even Heath saw it, I changed that to two brothers, half brothers, because it seemed the dynamic was better. But other than that, it stayed the same. It's funny because I wrote that film basically before cell phones were invented, right? <laughs> so it's not a every movie has everyone talking on cell phones all yeah. the time, and this. It, I have them, but it, it, it would have been the phone by the bed that's the landline if it hadn't been for cell phones. So it's a funny movie that way. No one's got a computer out. No one's, sure. But that's a fact. Uh, that's a result of having done it so long ago. But it's pretty, it's pretty close to what it was. You've had an amazing career as a screenwriter before you even were directing. So, I mean, I want to know, like, what did you glean from, you know, Richard Donner? What did you glean from, you know, Clint Eastwood? You know, what were you getting from Tony Scott? yeah. I mean, from Dick, who was like a dad to me, he was my film dad, and he took me under his wing. He used to have me on set, and he'd, I'd be at the monitor, and he'd scream at me. He'd be over with uh, Julia Roberts, right, at camera, and I'm looking at the monitor, and everyone's on the set, and he'd go, hey, Wonder Boy, Writer Boy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, look at the screen. Look at the monitor. And I'd look at the monitor. He goes, now look over here. Look where the camera is. Look where Julia is. What lens am I on? Wow. And I'd go... 35 and he'd go 50 and he'd go jesus 
Jesus, Brian, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you? But then every day I would look, I'd be like, that's why learning lenses, which yeah. he liked me enough to, I didn't ask him. He was like, I'm teaching this kid. Yeah. But he, what he taught me was that, there's, that directing a movie is the greatest job on the face of the earth. And if you're not having fun doing it, go st stop doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Let someone who wants to have fun do it. And if the people around you aren't having fun doing it, if you're making people miserable while you have the greatest job on the face of the earth, you're a prick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that from Dick. It's like, have fun doing this and make sure everyone else is having fun doing it. Yeah. I mean, you have to ask my crew if that's true, because it's <laughs> easy for me to say, yeah, they're all having a blast. Anyways, but from Tony, it was the just the work ethic. Tony had a work ethic that was unbelievable, and he never shut off from, once he was doing the film, it was his life. Mm -hmm. And he never shut off. Always, it was some one last thing to learn, one last thing to figure out. When we did Man on, I did a couple of movies with him, but when we did Man on Fire, we were in a Mexican prison meeting guys who kidnapped people so we could get the details right. Wow. You know, we, he was going to do a movie about the Hells Angels, and we met Sonny Barger, the head of the Hells Angels, yeah. in a hotel room that had to be arranged at the last minute because he wanted to make sure that, that the FBI couldn't wiretap it. And when we were all done, Tony said, okay, we're gonna, this is how we pitched it to him, right? You're not going to be the villain and all this stuff. And he lied to him. And I, we left the meeting. and I'm like, Tony, you just told all that to Sonny Barger. And that's not what we're doing. He was like, yeah, if he heard what I was really going to do, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. And I said, he's going to come kill us. <laughs> we, didn't, we, didn't just pitch to, we didn't just pitch to Nick Cage. We pitched to the head of the Hells Angels. He's like, no, he won't. He won't. And I dropped out of it. I'm like, he's going to kill us. He's going to wake up in the middle of the night, and there's going to be a Swedish Hells Angel at the foot of the bed saying, Sonny says hello. <laughs> but that's what I learned from Tony, the dedication. I've never been around anyone more dedicated to what they were doing. Yeah. And Clint, it's how little you can do to make a scene. And, and I don't mean that... I mean that in a compliment, as complimentary as I can say it. He knew how little film he needed to shoot to yeah. make that scene work. He famously always comes in uh, under budget, he, like ahead of schedule, yeah. maybe one take. And when you hear that, it misses the point. Yeah. Because the point is, is that he knows the drama and everything that scene needs to do. He's he's got it in the can mm -hmm. because he knows so well. He can edit it in his head while he's looking at it. So it just seems like, well, he doesn't shoot much coverage. It's like, but the coverage he shoots is essential. Mm -hmm. Like I'll shoot a master and not use it because it's sometimes, sometimes I will, but sometimes it's just for rehearsing because it's, it's an angle that's not attractive in a way, but he doesn't do that because he, he knows that what he needs. Yeah. You wrote 42, story of Jackie Robinson, but you also gave a lot of writing credit to Chadwick Boseman. Now, talk a little bit about that relationship that you two had. And it seems like, I, am I wrong in that you don't normally have that kind of relationship with your lead actor and giving them such leeway? Yeah, not, not, not. I think that's the one case, really. I got on that movie in an oddball way because I was asked by the producers were trying to buy the rights from Mrs. Robinson, who's still alive. She's 101 years old, I wow. think. And at the time, she was like a spry 88. <laughs> and when, and I, when I say spry, she was spry. She's vigorous. She's an amazing woman. She sent 10,000 kids to college wow. through her foundation. No one really knows about it. But I was just brought in as a favor to a producer to explain to her how a movie could be made. Mm -hmm. And she so was taken with my approach to it, which was just to, instead of telling a cradle to grave life biopic, was to boil it down to the one year that he played for the Dodgers, that first year he played for him. So she kind of anointed me to direct it. Mm -hmm. She's like, so when are you going to, what else are you going to do? And blah, blah, blah. And the next thing I knew, I was in charge of the whole thing. But trying to find Jackie Robinson's a tricky thing, obviously. Sure. You know, uh, any, anyone trying to find Muhammad Ali or trying to find Franklin Roosevelt or whatever the historical character is. And Chad was the second person to come in. And he left the room. And I, I looked at the casting director and I'm like, that's him. We can stop. And she's like, I wish we could stop, but we got to see about 50 <laughs> people for this. No one could ever match Chad. No one could ever match Chad. And we, he looks much younger, but he was in his mid-30s at the time, mm -hmm. roughly. And he had been at it a long time with very little success. But he was ready. He was ready for the moment. He had prepared himself so thoroughly to be a movie star, if it ever could just work out for him. Yeah. And he was dedicated. He started this training program and worked with, you know, just the physical part of it, never mind the mental part of it. And we were partners on it and not to be, in a way, Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson were partners 
in what was a much bigger thing than we're, we're just making a movie. Those, those guys were doing a, a living, breathing thing that was, was transcendent in, in American history. But we, we're working together, too. And I can never go on the field. Like, I can never be on camera like he can. All I can do is try to give him everything I can give him to help him. And that's how we made the movie, mm-hmm. as, as, as a real team and brothers in a way. And he nailed it. You know, he his chance came, and he he his chance came, and he grabbed it by the throat. Yeah, yeah, he was he made the most of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get a little choked up about him, but funniest thing with Chad was we were doing ADR. There was a weird sound, metallic sound, every time we did a take, and then recordist kept saying, "Does anyone have anything? Like, has anyone been dangling keychain or something like that?" No, 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 no. And finally, the guy says, "Uh, Chad, do you have anything?" change in your pocket or anything and chad goes oh yeah and he's kind of embarrassed and he reaches in his pocket and brings out about 15 dollars and quarters <laughs> and dumps them all on the table and the recordist is like yeah that's that's what we were hearing and he said yeah no he goes after i leave here I get, i'm going to the laundromat i gotta do my laundry <laughs> and the guy says well you won't be doing you won't be going to the laundry to do your laundry mat when this movie comes out no more. And there was a funny pause, and he looked at me and just really quiet to me. He goes, "I like going to the laundry mat." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, whatever, he was he was something else. That's terrific. So, uh, like I told you when you sat down, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are aspiring filmmakers, the first time filmmakers. So we absolutely love getting into the weeds about process. So let's start with you as a writer. So when you're sitting down, is it an idea is coming to you. Or are you just in the shower and you're coming up with something? Or is it, you know, I mean, you're with the fancy agency and all that stuff. Is it yeah. just like, okay, here's the projects you want, we want you to go ahead and pitch on? Yeah, usually, I mean, as far as like trying to do something or pitch on, on something, it's always I have to be know that I can do it. I have to have an attraction to it yeah. for whatever the reason is. Like it's, it's kind of one of those things I can't just do anything, you know. So it has to appeal to me. And that appeal can be all kinds of things. But it's gen- genuinely, gen- generally, the character and what, what that character is about or the group of characters. But it's, it's usually always character-based. And if I'm writing it from scratch, which I do some, some of the time, it all starts with the character and or a situation. Well, I got to, I mean, to push you on that a little bit, like you've had such a varied career when it comes to writing. You've had like so many different, like you're not like a guy who's just done one genre. Like you've jumped around all over the place. Yeah. And so uh, what is that... What is it about that character that you need to find your way yeah. in? Because it seems like the genre is like almost secondary. Like, yeah. I don't care if it's a horror film or whatever else, but yeah. it's like this particular person. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if there was an over, because it is all over the place on the surface. I think a lot of what I do is the characters. It's about identity. Yeah. One way or the other, someone with a strong identity or someone with trying to figure out who they are. But for example, like Rus- in LA Confiden- Confidential, Russell Crowe, is the like they say he's the guy they bring in to scare the shit out of the other guy. He's the yeah. cop they bring in to beat up guys, and everyone thinks he's a muscle and an idiot. And he wants to be a detective, and he knows he can be, but no one else thinks so. And I always, at that time, I was writing, I was very pigeonholed in what I anyone thought I could do, and I immediately thought, oh, I'm Russell. I'm not Russell. I'm Bud White. Yeah, yeah. I'm the screenwriter they think is only good enough to do a horror movie or an action movie. You know, they, a drama. And that was the case. I was trying to meet on that over and over again. And it was kind of like, you know, Brian can't write this. He's, yeah. He can't write dramatic stuff. And then and you so, had a Rolo Tomasi in your background. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah. 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 And that was that. It was Russell, the, uh, the Russell character, Bud White, really appealed to me on that level. On Knight's Tale, I wrote that as a kind of rags to riches story about trying to get into Hollywood in a way. And even more so, I had a difficult time on Payback, which was the movie before that. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it was a, about a screenwriter who wanted to be a director with screenwriters being the peasants and directors being the knights. Yeah. So that's what I brought into it to, to know how to, to have handles on it in a way. And it's always kind of felt like that a little bit. So you're always starting with the characters first. Yeah. And then what's that person's journey? And then how do we build this plot around Yeah. Them? And then sometimes they're lone kind of one guy movies. Or, uh, but but I, I, I'm very much like the ensemble nature of it, too. And sometimes give them little bits of myself or little bits of people I know and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. And then to go into your directing process, are you, are you storyboarding, you're doing stick figures, are you building something in Unreal Engine before you're going out there? Like, what are you like miniatures? Like, what are you doing in order to make sure like you, you, you get your story at least in your head before you're going out to shoot? Yeah. 
I don't storyboard much. I'll storyboard stuff that has effects involved in it. Mm -hmm. Like in 42, if we have, we're building so much of the stadium and we're putting fake crowd back there. So they need to know what some of those shots are because they got to bid them and all those things. So I'll storyboard if VFX needs the shot. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I really won't. But I'll, I make shot lists just really old fashioned by the, on a pad of paper, bring it to set in the morning. And never underestimate your script supervisor if you have a good script supervisor. And especially years ago, the women that were script supervisors in today's world would have been directors because they're so knowledgeable about all that stuff. And they just were so limited in how far they could get. But you'd go over your script, your shot list with them and they'd say, yeah, but you also need this and that and work together with them. And but it's just really old fashioned shot lists and things like that. But really, the big thing is when you rehearse in the morning, once you have the rehearsal working well, the shot list is obvious of what you need. Yeah. It really is. That line, we need, we, need to be on, we need to be in here for that line. But this exchange over here, we don't ever need close-ups of that. We can do a two-shot. And yeah. it very much is in, in the outside of the action part of it. That, that stuff is apparent. If, if you try to plan that before they rehearse, you're throwing it all out anyways, I yeah. think. And then the bigger action stuff, you just need more, not to abdicate it, but if you're, you know, you need the, the talents of all those guys and, and women that are helping you with, with all that stuff as far as stunt coordinators and sure. second unit directors and mostly make sure it's keeping in the style that you've created and yeah. all that. And to speak to your other studio, I mean, sorry, your, your other production heads, like, so when you're meeting with your cinematographer beforehand, like... What kind of storyboards are you, what kind of like, are you bringing like, this is the kind of lighting I want to go for. This is the colors that I want to go for. Like, what are you bringing to yeah, them? Yeah, I, I like with a cinematographer, I just talk about everything in terms of emotion, really. Mm-hmm. This is the emotion of the scene or of the sequence and, and talk to them that way and let them tell me then, therefore, then we should shoot it this way. I don't have the experience enough to, to be telling them how we're going to, what the look of this film is going to be, but I know it. When I hear it, I know yeah. it when I know that they're on the same page as me emotionally or, or how we're telling this story. And then you just work within that. You know, it's you write alone. You spend all day long as a writer feeling like an idiot <laughs> and, and, and every yes. day knowing yes. that you've done it, but someone better than you could have done it better. Mm-hmm. And directing, you walk on set and there's 175 people that are like, how can we help you? Yeah. And so to pretend like they're all at a sermon and you're up there preaching and telling them this is how we're going to do this today. And they're all like, oh, that's, I've never thought of that. It's like you're at, you have 175 talented people helping you. It's the easiest job in the world. Well, you did a movie with Ben Stiller. Highway to Hell. Highway to Hell. The shot that I always go back to are those, I mean, what was it, 125, something like, all those VW bugs right. just screaming across the desert. Right. Like, and it always blows me away because... I, like I always feel filmmakers who shoot things practically. I was like, you're a hero. This right. is magic. I mean, like this right. is the sort of thing, like you know, like the MGM backlot back in the day, where right. it's like you know, you you pass by like you know a herd of elephants. You yeah. know, like yeah. can you talk a little bit about that production? Because for if anyone listening to this has not seen that movie, go see it immediately because right. it is batshit crazy <laughs> right. and it is such a fun ride. Yeah, I think like in hell, the, all the guys who pick up trash on the side of the road are. I, we have like twenty guys that look like Andy Warhol yeah. doing that. <laughs> And I think you have all of Ben Stiller's family in it. Yeah, his sister included. Yeah. She's playing Cleopatra down in hell. And he's the short order cook in hell. And yeah. he's, he's cooking food on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He ad-libbed all that stuff. He just ad-libbed all that stuff. I think I, it's the first. I don't know for sure, but I think it might be his first appearance on film. The director wanted Stiller and Mirror, the, you know, his parents, yeah. comedy team, to be in the film and cameos. And I think they said, yeah, but you got to have our kids, too. And he said, sure, I'll have your kids. So Is Ben fella? Yeah. Yeah, I'll give him a shot. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the first scripts I wrote. It was a spec script I wrote. It's one of those scripts where the check, I think I sold it for like $9,000 uh-huh. all in. That was the entire purchase price. The check bounced, right? So they send a check and it bounces. <laughs> and then they send another check and it, this is 1988, maybe, 87. They send another check and it bounces. Oh, this is awkward. And my agent calls me one day. He goes, all right, I screamed at them. And I'm like, yeah, you screamed at them when the first check bounced. He's like, I screamed at them more. And he said, they're sending another check at three o'clock. He goes, what's your bank? And I said, Security Pacific, which isn't even a bank anymore. And he said, okay, there's one across the street. Get here at three. 
And at three, I'm in the lobby. A courier comes, hands him the check. And as he gets the check, he hands it to me. I run out in the hallway, get on the elevator. I run across Sunset Boulevard into the bank. I endorse it and hand it off. And it clear. Hey, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's amazing. But I think they were like, uh, if it doesn't clear, we're still making it. You can sue us. <laughs> you know, and then they, we'll pay you in craft. Yeah. 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 And they got a, this Dutch director, Otto de Young, was a great guy to direct it. We just had a blast. We ended up out in Page, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And we ran out of money with, I think, six days to shoot. Wow. And they were just like, well, just put it together with what you got. Good Lord. And, we, and it was a 20-some-odd day shoot. And we, and we just didn't shoot six, probably 20 pages of the script. We just didn't <laughs> shoot. Well, I know you would, you would ask the people of the town as well. It's like, if you have any VW bugs, yeah. can you please donate yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. So we got all these Volkswagens, and it's all practical. That helicopter shot is still, I yeah. think, absolutely <laughs> amazing. So underrated. Some of it's corny. Some of it's not. And, the, you know. Yeah, it's the cop from hell. But I'm, I'm proud of it. His handcuffs, which were two hands at the end of, connected by a chain, I have them in my office hanging up no a, over my desk. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I got to say thanks for that and 976 Evil and a yeah. slew of other films that... Uh, you know, I, I love every... They're like kids. I love every single one of them. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't think... There's not one I'm ashamed, including The Postman. I'm not, uh, there's not one I'm ashamed of. <laughs> I worked hard on all of them and some of them came out good and some of them didn't and whatever. Well, I'm kind of surprised because this one took 25 years. So like, how many more do you have in the vault where you're just like, well, let's, we got a yeah, few more. We I gotta, yeah, I there's a couple. I'm like, here. what am I doing? I'm, yeah. I'm sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> yeah, so we'll try maybe, but yeah. You've been fantastic. We're now down to our final six questions. These are kind of rapid fire questions. What was the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it? And this can be something you made in your backyard when you were a kid. This could be like a high school project, whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I made a film at film school called Dave Abe, The Man, The Myth, and The Legend. Was my <laughs> classmate at Loyola. I love that movie. I think it's 12 minutes long and it's just a, everyone talking about what an amazing, per, you know, it's sort of this kind of crazy self-aggrandizing kind of thing and he's great in it and that's right i love that movie i don't know where it is though i was gonna say yeah, it was last time no, you saw that no i know what is some of the best filmmaking advice you've got well speaking of shot lists when i was doing payback i was prepping it and dick donner would call me all the time to see how i was doing and check in on me and he'd always wake me up i'd always be i was in chicago and he was in his either in hawaii or los angeles and the phone would ring at midnight and it'd be like hello and he'd be like what are you doing why aren't you in bed? And I'm like, I am in bed, Dick. And he's like, Mel's going to ask you to go out and, and go to dinner and stay out late. Don't do it. And I said, okay, I won't do it. And he goes, what else? What else? Are you ready? And I said, yeah, I storyboarded. I, I mean, I shot listed every scene in the film. And he said, what? And I said, I shot listed every scene in the film. And he started laughing. And he goes, you'll throw it out the third day of shooting. Not a short answer. And uh, no, it's fine. Go for I it. said, uh, no, I won't. It's a great shot list. And he goes, no, he's just rehearsing. You'll know what to do. It's a stupid thing. Shot lists are stupid. I'll throw it out now. And I'm like, I'm not throwing it out. It's great. And then uh, the third day I threw it out. No kidding, yeah. really? Yeah, because he was right. Oh, man. I, I don't know. I like, listen, Richard Donner is Richard Donner. Yeah. But uh, like I, when I had my feature, absolutely, I had my little stick <laughs> figures, and I would look at that thing religiously. I don't think it hurt me that I shot list the whole movie, because yeah. it was all in my head. I threw the list out, but the process I had gone through was certainly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. What is some of the worst filmmaking advice that you have gotten? The worst? I, don't, I wouldn't even name anyone, because so many people have said this to me. It's yeah. that... Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll figure it out when we do reshoots, mm-hmm. which I find to be a horrific thing to say. Yeah. Like, we don't think... I've, I've only done a little bit of reshoots on one thing that I ever directed. And I, to, to have the thought that I'm, I'm approaching this so haphazardly yeah. that I'm going to just have to go back and do it over again, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense to me. So any time you hear we'll get it in reshoots, first of all, you might not get them. But secondly, it's like that's... That's the half-ass attitude you're going to go into this with. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's, I've been told, you know, so many people have that attitude. It's hard to assign it to one. There's that, that joke, like, we'll get it in post. And yeah. whenever you hear that, it's like, yeah, you'll get it in post. It'll look terrible. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah sure, you'll get it. Yeah. It'll just <laughs> yeah. look like crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? I, I mean, I always set out to write the movie I want to go see. Yeah. But I think the joke of making a movie is that you go through it so many times, you see scenes so many times, whether you've written them, shooting them, seeing them in the editing room over and over and over again, trying to make something work. 
That by the time you're done, you've made a movie that you can never enjoy. Mm-hmm. And that seems like a very odd thing to dedicate all that time and effort to making something that you're never going to be able to sit down and actually watch, which is what the audience gets to do. So I always quickly learned that it was the experience of making the joy and the I don't know if it's I don't know if you ever use the movie, the words movie and art together in the same sentence. <laughs> and it might be semantics. And I'm, I'm sure many people would immediately jump down my throat for it. But to me, the art of making a film is is the making of the film. Yeah. It's the actual here, all the, the right, all of it combined. As, and if you do that sincerely and you do that to the best of your ability and with everyone involved, because you go from a completely solitary job in writing to a completely social job in directing. If you do that with grace and commitment and honor to the people you're working with, it's that experience that is irreplaceable that you'll, you can't get anywhere else. And if there's an art to making a movie, it's the art of how you, how you make it. And I found that when you do that, the movie takes care of itself. And I've never been involved with a movie that was difficult that came out worth anything. Yeah, that's kind of amazing right there. All right. If you could go back in time and give young Brian some advice, what advice would you give yourself? I don't. Boy, try to meet Dick Donner sooner than you did. <laughs> None really. Um, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> just yeah, real quick. <laughs> Nothing. I My path... My path to doing all this, which is awkward and had a lot of hard moments in it, I, it made me who I am. So I don't, I just say I'd get, get ready because you're going to have a fucking blast, yeah. you know? It's kind of like that weird, I used to have it when I was a teenager, I had a poster of Clint Eastwood on the wall outside my bedroom door. Yeah. And it was him from uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with his poncho it's on, a favorite. low angle shot. Yep. And 15 years later... I'm in his office talking to him and he's treating me like I'm a member of the team, you know, he's not. And that to me is kind of like mind boggling, you know, it's mind boggling. And that's things that that's what that's the life it gave me. And I don't mean it's like glamorous or anything, but it's like I'm working with this guy, you know. Yeah. The first thing I did for him was a movie called Bloodwork, and it was the shortest script I had ever written. It was like 90 pages long. And I had to go. Well, I didn't email it to him. I had to go to his office and hand it to him. And I was worried that he was going to think I hadn't done my job because it was so short. And that's all I'm thinking about as I'm going in. And I go and they send me back there and he gets up from his desk. He's like, oh, it's done. And I hand it to him. And the second I hand it to him, he starts to heft it up and down in his hand like he's weighing it. Yeah. And all my worst nightmares are like, oh, no, he's, he's going to say, what the hell is this? And he looked at me. and He said, how long is this? And I said, it's 90 pages. And he goes, 90 pages. It's already the best script I ever read in my life. <laughs> and I left the meeting and I'm walking back to, I had an office at Warner's at the time because of LA Confidential and everything. And I'm walking back to my office and I was, I'm walking back to my office. I, he didn't really mean it, you know, yeah, but yeah. I'm walking back to my office and I'm like, Glenn Eastwood just said it's the greatest it's already the greatest script he's ever read in his life. And I was scared of the opposite was going to happen. It was like, what kind of, how am I here? How am I here? I don't get it. That's uh, amazing. And I still don't. Every time I'm on a film set, I'm like, what the, how the yeah. hell am I here? It doesn't, I, I don't I, know. I'm always shocked yeah, when people are like flippant or, or, you know, like just mean, like on a film set. Just like, no, you guys, we made it. We're on set. Like, this is like, you know, as like a writer and as a filmmaker, like you spend so much time, like just trying to get to the job. You have to do all this yeah. other stuff. And like when you're there, like, this is it, man. Yeah. We're here. <laughs> yeah. Last question. Is making movies hard? I think that to make a movie, you have to give your life to it. Mm. And I don't know how hard that sounds to anybody or how easy that sounds to anybody. But it is such a demanding thing that you have to give your life to it. And certainly you don't, not at the expense of people and all that kind of thing, but you have to say, this is it. This is what I'm, I'm giving my life to this. I'm making this everything. And I don't know if it's going to give back to me. It's not like that guarantees your reward because it doesn't. And I think it's a little bit like an Aztec saying, I worship the sun yeah. and I do what the sun wants me to do. And if it kills me, it kills me. But I, that's, that's the commitment required to really have a, ch- not to make it, but to have a chance to make it. Yeah. And if that sounds easy, then it's easy. But if it doesn't, it's, <laughs> it's not. So this has been amazing. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. Last thing, how do people support you? How do people support Fine is Kind? How do people find it? What, what do we do? What's the call yeah, to action? Yeah, it's coming out in December. 
mid-December. It's on Paramount Plus. I believe it's going to have a theatrical, a small theatrical run. I'm not quite sure about that yet. But it's December 15th. It, it, it'll be day and date if it is. So mm-hmm. it, it, all, all the numbers are the 15th of December. Just go online and just say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> Perfect. Easy. <laughs> if easy. you remember when that invention happened, yeah. Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber. Back to the show! So I hope you all enjoyed that conversation. And since Eric was the one who ran this interview, here's Eric to talk about his conversation with Brian. Welcome, Eric. Hey, thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. So talk to us about the most amazing thing from the Brian Brian's interview. This is such an easy question, but it, this was a, strangely an emotional interview. I was really looking forward to this interview. I'm a big fan of Brian's. He's had an amazing career. You know, he was his mentor was Richard Donner. And so wow. he talked about uh, quite a few times in the in the interview about, you know, getting calls at three in the morning because Richard lived in Hawaii and just giving him like all sorts of like, hey, Brian, it's Dick. You're Mel Gibson's going to ask you to go out tomorrow. Don't do it. You got to stay in the pocket. You know, like all these crazy <laughs> stories. And one that I just happened to to notice when I was doing my research was the fact that he had wrote and directed 42, which was one of the, uh, probably the breakout film for Chadwick Boseman. Oh, and, absolutely. And this, the, the interesting thing was that he gave a co-screenwriting credit to Chadwick. And oh, so wow. I, I just, I had to ask him about this and happened to bring it up. It's like, oh, do you have that kind of relationship very often? And he went on to tell a couple of stories that I'm sure the listeners just heard that absolutely broke my heart and he started crying and his wife who was with him she had started crying i started crying wow. just because you could tell like he had cared so much for this man who had done so much work and was such an incredible talent and was just a nice good person who then unfortunately was cut down in his prime and we really didn't get a chance to see what could have come what could have become of the rest of his career yeah it was extremely moving it was fascinating for having had as much success as he's had, it was so interesting to see he was such a grounded, mellow, salt-of-the-earth everyman. There was no pomp. There was no prestige. There was nothing. It was just him and his wife and the publicist. And he showed up and he had a big smile and said, hi, nice to meet me. And he treated me with the same respect that he would have any actual journalist. So it was it was wonderful to sit and talk with him. I could have sat and talked with him for another two hours, but unfortunately, I didn't want to monopolize that much of his time. But it was a terrific interview. I, I really hope people enjoy it. Wow, amazing. I'm a humongous payback fan from being a child watching that movie and then mm-hmm. going back to it later and like still loving it. So like I asked you after <laughs> when you had interviewed him, I asked you if you guys talk about payback. But yeah, was there any like great payback story that uh, he shared? Or I guess I should just listen to the interview. (laughs) (laughs) The one that he really mentioned was the fact that Richard Donner called him in the middle of the night and warned him about the fact that Mel Gibson was going to invite him to dinner after the shoot. Wow. And he told him, do not go. Do not go out to dinner with Mel Gibson because he'll take you out drinking. You guys will stay out way too late and then the film will get fucked. So, like, make sure, you know, like, you don't do that. Like, keep your, like, keep your head down. Keep working. So, no, the, the, he didn't have too much for that. But, uh, you know, we did have a nice conversation about L.A. Confidential, which is the screenplay that he wrote that, uh, of course, won him his Oscar. Wow. And he had talked about just the kind of demons that he had in his past that he needed to, to call upon in order to, to write that script. And also, when he'd first gotten the the source material, he just he didn't know if he was going to be able to do it or not. So just listening to his process, listening to him kind of like wade through like all of these different projects was was really, really interesting. And so and so for the film that we we discussed, it was fascinating as well. Like this is, I think, one of the first films that he wrote out of film school. But then it took 30 years for him to actually make it to the screen. And it's a terrific film. Ben Foster does a great job in it. I highly recommend. I got a chance to, to watch the screener, so I was feel, feel oh, very fortunate. Nice. I, I highly recommend to other people go check it out because 
It is a terrific story. Man, he's written so many movies that are like um, were important to me as a kid, like Assassins. I really liked watching LA Confidential, of course. And then when I got older, like Knight's Tale, when high school, watch, you know, going to see that movie with all my friends. And then Mystic River was a big deal for me. Yeah. You know, seeing that movie, just like becoming really interested in filmmaking and everything. And also, I saw Blood Work in the theater, too, which is also oh, wow, really? <laughs> Which is, it's funny that he did two Clean Eastwoods back to back. Yeah. And one was like a humongous success and one was not as much. But uh, and then, of course, Man on Fire, too. Like, dear God, yeah. this guy is like so prolific. It's incredible. It's nuts. Absolutely. <laughs> he just and he also seemed to be one of those guys who happened to have a golden career because it seems almost right out of college. There was a number of directors who really like especially, you know, Richard Donner. He really goes back to him like this guy really took me under his wing and just decided like, all right, this kid's going to be he's going to be my project. And and he stuck with him his whole career and gave him countless, you know, wow. words of wisdom. And it seemed like, you know, then, of course, that led to, yeah, to people like Clint Eastwood. And it led to, you know, to bigger and bigger and bigger projects. And the guy has been cranking out amazing scripts for 30 years. Yeah. And, and directing great movies, too. Just pretty cool. So, yeah, Eric, just want to thank you for going out to Austin and getting this interview and all the other amazing interviews you got. Anything else you want to say about the Brian's interview? Uh, You know, I just I hope everyone enjoys it. Please go watch some of his movies. Go watch Chadwick Boseman movies. A huge thank you to the Austin Film Festival for setting up these interviews for us. And also a big shout out to the Omni Hotel for giving us the super swank podcasting room that we uh, recorded everything in. Well, thanks, Eric, for joining and telling us about Brian Brian's interview. But now it's time for You're the Expert. This is a segment where our wonderful producer, Eric Toms, has come up with a question that he thinks Liz and I will be the absolute expert at. We'll know the definitive answer to this question. We know we get these in advance so we can, like, you know, protest if we think we don't have the answer. But we never do because we never look at it that early, <laughs> I would say. I mean, I, I sometimes do. And I say like, eh, maybe they'll come up with something different. You know, if it's like, I feel like it's something that we talked about a lot. This one is interesting. So I'm just going to let it fly. And then Liz is going to answer first and I'll answer second. I want to get the rights to a book and make it into a movie. Should I just contact the author, make a short and then show it to them in hopes this will excite them? What do you think, Liz? Uh, I don't think you should make a short and and hope that it will excite them. I think that's Unless you're like the world's best, like most efficient economic shorts filmmaker where that's not requiring a major investment from you. But I think we've talked about it a lot, especially in last week's episode where we this will probably be two weeks ago episode where we interview a bunch of shorts filmmakers. They can get really pricey and you could spend like a year doing a short. Right. So Mm -hmm. a lot of investment for no real sense of payoff. You know, it's hiring a lawyer. It's going through the option process with an author. But I do have to say, I went to the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles and I got inspired by there's this like mini exhibit on a woman who went across the world on a motorcycle. And I was like, mm. wow, she sounds amazing. She probably wrote a book. She did write a book. And I didn't read the book. I just contacted her and I said, does someone have rights to this already? And she said, yeah, but their option runs out in May. And like, there is a world where you can contact the author, but I wouldn't come on strong. I would just say, I'm a filmmaker. I like your story. I just want to see if anyone else has the rights to this. And if they don't, then it's like, start looking into, you know, do you have the amount of funds to provide a meaningful option? to an author and think about how much time you want to option that book for, because there's not a lot you could do in a short period of time, right? But you may not be able to afford a longer term option agreement. So anyway, I don't know a lot about this, but I can say that like, it's a major investment of time and energy. And a lot of properties are already taken by other major studio vehicles. So that's a concern. So would you offer an option without any money or do you think that's just like not classy and like you shouldn't do that? Like you should always try to option with money for to an author, even if you're like a no budget, low budget filmmaker. If that's your game, like if that's your goal is like your goal is like at the end of this, I'm going to option for like a zero dollars or one dollar. Then it's like you have to come in with some sort of argument 
towards you being the perfect person to make this film and to Mm -hmm. convince them, right? Like, I would never start the conversation saying, I have no money. Would you let me option this for zero dollars? (laughs) Right? Because that person is not going to take you seriously and they're not going to listen to you. But if you say, hey, I want to pitch to you how I'd want to make this movie, would you be open to meeting and or would you open to a Zoom and you just start up a relationship, uh, you know, a lot and it and you would and you have to think of it like the long game, I would assume. Right. You don't just think one meeting I'm going to get them. It's like you're going to have to convince them. They're probably represented by a book agent. You know, they probably have a suit of people around them, too. But a lot of authors have websites with contact pages. So you could go to them directly. And that's what I would encourage people to do is try to make a human connection with the author. Yeah. What about you? Well, I I know there's some sort of registry where you can like just go and check and to see if a book has been optioned. Yeah. So like I would, you could do that first. And then sometimes you could check with the publisher. I can't remember. I heard this on John August's podcast on, on, script notes years ago that like there's a way there's like a process you can follow where you can find out if the book is optioned or not and then like once you find that out then you can decide if you want to reach out to the author directly or what your next step is or if you you know approach like if you have a manager or an agent then you can like talk to them about like your plans and then they can advise you on the next step or like you said a lawyer same thing but yeah i i like your idea of like going after the author first definitely agree don't make a short film Because, you know, like, I think you want to just see if this is even a person you want to collaborate with first, because it's like not just like, oh, my gosh, like, can I convince them? It's it's also like, do you want to you know, is this going to be a good fit for you? Like, are is this person, despite how much you love the book, like, are they going to be a good partner for you to collaborate on making a movie? Because if you're going to do it in the way that I could do it, you know, or seemingly you too, Liz, like where we don't have any money and we're going to like try to like go with our hearts and our passion and our vision and our creativity. Like it's going to be a partnership that's going to last for a very long time. And there's going to be, have to be a lot of faith on both sides to like make sure it works. And then the contract and, and all that stuff. So you're going to really have to like make sure that works. Like I did this once. I don't remember how I got in contact with this person, but like I adapted a short story into a screenplay that, you know, I w- then was like trying to make into a short film and we were working together on it with, for a couple of years. And then basically a couple of times he was like, oh yeah, like I've got somebody who's interested in this story to option it. Like, do you want to like, you know, op- make an offer before I like release it to them? And I'm like, nah, I'll just go for it. And then like, they'd be even asked like, hey, like, can I use your screenplay that you've written to like share with them? And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. you know, as long I don't know. I can't remember what I said, but you say I, no, I, I, Ulrich. You say that's mine. You I was because yes. we, we kind of wrote it together. So I was like, oh, you know, okay. whatever, as long as you give me credit and I have half of whatever, like oh. the, the whatever the the profit of the screenplay is like, OK, I don't that's care. Cool. You know? Yeah, I'm really laid back with these kinds of things. But I don't even remember what his ask was. I don't think it was. I don't think he actually needed a screenplay. I think he just wanted to like use the story, like like see if somebody else wanted to, you know, adapt the story. The problem with that one is it's so damn expensive to make that it's like I can't even worry about it right now. You know, it's just like oh, it would be you know lots of special effects and everything. But yeah, I don't know. I I feel like getting the rights to the book to a book is like something I'm just so like not in the zone for it's like i'm more like i want to just write something original and make that like i'm not trying to like go out and make that kind of movie and there's like no book that like besides some comic books there's a couple comic books that i'm like pretty excited like about like adapting one day but like i'm i'm just like i know that if i want a dc comic book rights like i i'm not gonna get it unless i'm an established filmmaker or writer with a management and an agent and whatever. So like, it's not even worth trying that right now for me. It's like, I would, I have to establish myself first before I can even get into like that kind of thing. You know, yeah. I think it'd be like silly to like, as, as an independent filmmaker with one feature under my belt to be like, yes, famous comic book writer who's written many, many famous comic books. But this one is like a small one that no one really knows about, like from the eighties. I want to adapt this. And it'd be like, yeah, talk to DC. And they'd be like, oh, okay. Well, yeah. Okay, uh, James Gunn. Uh, I should be the one to make this one that maybe you don't even care about. Well, <laughs> but maybe one day, right? I mean, one like, day. maybe not right this second. And I, I think there are a, 
a couple things that I would adore adapting. But yes, at the same situation, like one Russell Crowe had a, an option on at one point, yeah. like 10 years ago. It's like, that's not going to happen for me. You know, and the other one, I think they've been had, it's a Neil Gaiman short story and I'm sure mm. they're going to make it at some point. You know what I oh, mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, but, but it's still like exciting. Like what if you had meeting with the representation and they're like, what would you adapt? You have that in your back pocket of like, this is yeah. what I would do. I think right place, right time. Like you have to know like when that's a p- like a possibility and like when it's like just a, you know, a pipe dream. And I feel like for indie filmmakers at our level, that kind of stuff's our pipe, our pipe dreams right now. But like maybe in five years, a few more movies down the line, maybe not, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways, what do you guys think? Would you make a short film and send it to the author? And like, has, have you done that? Has that worked? We'd love to hear uh, what other people think. You can send us a comment, question, or suggestion to podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com. Or if you really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which we would love. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. You also check out the International Screeners Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and many more other things. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to Brian Helgeland for coming on the show. Thanks to the Austin Film Festival for having us back this year and to the Omni Hotel for hosting us in their podcast room for a second time. Thanks to Yasmin Robinson from IDPR for setting this up. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimer, for doing the editing. Thanks to Robert Jones for handling all of our social media. And a humongous thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for going to Austin to record this interview and for just being awesome, period. Thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Yeah, I'm recording on QuickTime. I'm recording on Zoom. And I'm nasal sounding, so I'm ready. I'm recording on those things. I don't think I'm nasal sounding.